He's going to tell them. This is the second parable that he explains. But here's some important things to gather from this. One, there are two sowings. Two sowings. One of good seed and one of bad seed. And the other thing that we notice in this is that the seed, the sowing, that which grows, literally bearded darnel is the word that's used here, bearded darnel and wheat. And my understanding is very hard to tell that apart until the time of harvest. Then it's much easier to tell. They look different then. But when it's young, when it's growing, they look the same. So it's almost impossible to discern between the two. They grow up together. And at the time of the harvest, God knows how to separate. Now these are the important things that we want to see from what Jesus lays out in this story. And what he said is the servants see at a point in time they begin to see there's something different about the crop. And they come and they say, didn't you plant good seed? And to me it's exactly when you think about the kingdom of heaven, when we think about that period of time from the time Christ presented himself... In the first advent, okay, until the time Jesus Christ returns in Revelation chapter 19, that period of time is a period of time many look at as the kingdom of heaven. And during that period of time, you have the church, you have Jesus presenting himself, you're going to have tribulation saints who are going to come to faith. As a result, later on down the road, you have this, this wide deal going on, this wide, if you will, sowing. And this wheat that grows. But as this wheat grows, as it comes together, people come and say, Man, how can you tell me this is any good? Look, you got, you got bad seed in with a good seed. You ever heard people say that about the church? I'm not going to go to church. They're hypocrites in church. Come on. You're killing me. We've talked about it before, right? There's hypocrites in McDonald's. You go to McDonald's? Definition of a hypocrite. What is it? I'll have a Big Mac, large fry, and a Diet Coke. <laughs> Hypocrite. But I'll go. What they say is, and what they see, that which, which the world wants to look at and understand is godly, the Lord is laying out for us before it ever happens. The enemy is going to sow bad seed with the good. You're going to have... The real believers and the make-believers. And they're going to be together. And they're hard to tell apart. And then Jesus said, I don't want you messing with them. Because if you try to pluck them out, you're going to pull out some of the real. So leave them be. I know how to distinguish the real from a false. I know how to distinguish... Those who have a profession and those who have possession. Lip service and real ownership of the principles that the Lord lays out for us. So he's laying this out. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. Then he goes on. Now remember, these four parables deal with the kingdom of heaven. That period of time from his first advent to the second advent. That period of time... From man's perspective, what's man going to see? He's going to see a lot of sowing going on, but there's, there's not a ton of fruitfulness. A lot of that seed falls in areas that are not affected. What's the next thing he's going to see? He's going to see 
the church or the kingdom of heaven or this period of time where there's going to be fruitfulness. But as you look at it, you're going to see good and bad together. You're going to see them all intermixed. Then he goes on and he gives another. He says another parable he put forth to them. Allos, another of the same kind. What's the subject of all these parables? The same thing, the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? That period of time. From the time Jesus presented himself, just the chapter before this, and now he's saying, here's where the kingdom of heaven's going. The rejection has occurred. Here's where the kingdom of heaven's going. Seed, the evil growing with the good. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs. And it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, throughout time and throughout history, there have been a lot of interpretations about the parables. And if you want to go home, you can find a lot of different interpretations about the parables. But if you listen to what Jesus said, and you realize... That the first parable is the key to understanding all the parables. And you use what he gave us in the first parable, you can't make a mistake. If you decide, you know what, I kind of feel like what that means is, you can come into error. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? The difference. Another of the same kind he put forth them. The mustard seed there in Israel is the smallest seed in Israel. No, it's not the smallest seed in the world. But it's the smallest seed there in that region. And that's the people he's talking to, right? He's speaking to us down through time. But at the time, he's got a, he's got a, a group of people right there in front of him. He's talking to them. Say, hey, the mustard seed. It's like a guy who planted a mustard seed. And then he talks about this amazing growth. An amazing growth that takes place. Now, mustard seed will grow into a bush. But it almost never grows into a tree. This is something that speaks of of um, something amazing taking place. And he says, not only is it going to have this amazing growth that's going to grow into this tree, but the birds of the air are going to live in its branches. Now, if we use what Jesus told us, we should know something about the birds from the parable he spoke in the beginning. The one he said was the key, right? He said, this parable is the key. And what did he tell us about birds in that parable? He said, the birds were tools of the enemy. That Satan sent the birds to gather up the seed in the road. Remember? They swooped in, gathered up the seed, and took it away. So now he's saying, the kingdom of heaven, this period of time, is going to see this amazing growth. This amazing growth of the church. But within the church, you're going to have birds. Again, he's talking about that mixture. Think about it with me. The tares and the wheat, right? The good and the evil together. He's talking about an amazing growth. Within the the kingdom of heaven, within the church, this amazing growth takes place. But you have good and evil together. The birds and the branches. Now he says he knows how to separate the good from the bad, right? But what he's laying out for us is he looks at the kingdom of heaven from man's perspective. If we look at the history of the church, we disagree. Do we disagree that that the church grew amazingly? Of course we don't disagree. It started with 12 people. How many is there now? It's huge. There's been this incredible growth that has taken place. But as the church grew in power, what else did we see? Do we see the church become corrupt? 
Do we look at history and look at church history and we see the church running around through the land killing people in the name of God? Do we see the church doing things that are in direct opposition to who Jesus Christ is? Do we see the church not following His example? So as we look at it, when he talks about this, his abnormal growth is an abnormal growth that points to the reality, the truth, that as the church grew, it was going to lose its focus on who Jesus is. And the birds of the air would nest in its branches. Still you have good and evil together, mixture. Still you have this huge growth that has taken place. And the point that Jesus is making, he's saying, hey, that's the way it's going to be. When you look at it, you see that. We, we know it's true. If you get three churches together, they will fight. They will argue. Well, they argue about, well, you know, your particular church said in history this. Well, yeah, but your church did that. Oh, yeah, but then, then your church did this. And we can argue forever about that stuff. All it is is exactly what Jesus said would take place. Abnormal growth. Birds nesting in the branches. Evil together with the good. This is what's going to be seen. This is what's going to happen. Then in verse 33, he says another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Now remember I told you when Jesus gave these teachings, who did he give them to? The Western world? Sort of. Eventually. He was talking to real people in real time, wasn't he? Who was he talking to? Jews. Jews. So when we go to interpret the scripture, we don't go and say, well, what, how do I, what do I feel like this means? We say, what did it mean to the Jews he spoke to? What did leaven mean to them? Leaven was sin, was evil. Was evil. That's why they were always removing Leaven. In fact, three measures of meal spoke something to them as well. That was the meal offering. The meal offering spoke of the fellowship between man and God. It spoke of that because, you remember in the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah are kind of hanging out one day, and they see these three guys walking, and Abraham invites them over for a meal. And it turns out one of them is God. You remember, that's the whole time when the God says, Shall we tell Abraham what we're doing? They're headed to Sodom to destroy Sodom. And Abraham goes through the famous, will you destroy the righteous with the good? As we look at Scripture, as we see the three measures of meal, and we see leaven, and then we look in the pages of Scripture, in order for us to have a consistent understanding, when God uses types, when God uses models, when He paints for us pictures... The meaning doesn't fluctuate throughout the scripture. Unless God says it means something different. It holds that consistent meaning all the way through the pages. That's important to understand so that we don't start going off. You've heard people say before, the Bible could mean anything you want it to. Have you ever heard people say that? No, it can't mean anything you want it to unless you're doing it all wrong. It means what it says. It says what it means. Scripture lays out for us that leaven is is a symbol of evil. What have we been looking at in these four parables? We've been looking at the seed being sown, a harvest coming, and in that harvest, both good and evil. The growth of the church, but in that growth of the church, what do we have within the church? Good and evil. 
So when we come to the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, it's not like leaven, it's like leaven that has been added to the meal offering. So you have this evil, that is, this corruption that's put into that which brings fellowship with God. And that which is corruptible begins to corrupt that fellowship with God. What do we see in the kingdom of heaven today? What do we see in the, in the quote unquote church? Folks, you have churches today that are absolutely full to the brim, busting out the seams, coming out the doors that do not believe Jesus is God. That do not believe the plain teaching of the Word of God. They've grown. What happens when you add leaven to the meal? What happens when you put leaven in that flour? We know when we, we make a loaf of bread, right? It gets all puffy. There's probably a word for that. It rises. See, I told you I'm not a cook. <clears throat> it rises. And my understanding is it keeps rising. Unless I slam a door or something. And then it falls. I'm not sure whether that has anything to do with anything. The idea is, the, con- the concept that the Lord's laying out for us is that there's this corruption in that which is real, in that which is true. There's a corruption. And that the way people view the kingdom of heaven, the way man will view the kingdom of heaven, they'll see the good and the bad. The two sowings, right? If you go around the world and you ask people, is the world getting better or is the world getting worse? You get two answers. Some will say the world is getting better. Others will say the world is getting worse, which is true. Both. Why is both true? There's two sowings. The good and the evil grow up together. So on one hand, there are good things that are happening. And on the other hand, the evil is right next to it, step for step, until God brings the separation. Until that time. He says to the church, it's going to get big, but there's evil in it. He says to the church, it's going to grow, but it's going to become corrupt. Folks, that's church history, man. That's church history 101. But here, Jesus, before the church even exists, the church doesn't exist for, for actually quite a number of days from this point in his ministry until the day of Pentecost after his crucifixion and resurrection. But he's telling us what's going to occur, what's going to happen. He lays it all out for him. And look what it says in verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. He's given an illustration of things they never saw. Think about it. They never saw the rejection of the Messiah. They saw the Messiah come, set up his kingdom, and this kingdom be this great thing. But they didn't understand the rejection. They didn't understand that opening of that period of time that we're talking about right here. They didn't understand the church. They didn't understand the salvation that God would wrought from all those things were secrets. They were pictured or modeled in stories in the Old Testament, but they didn't have an understanding for it. Here Jesus, in the parables, is shining a light on it. He's revealing it. He's saying, here's what it looks like. This is what it acts like. This is how it all comes together. So he lays that out for him. He begins to lay it out for him. But as he speaks to them in parables, in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away. He didn't tell them anything else. And then it says, he went into the house. So the multitude's gone now. They have what Jesus said was the key. His explanation of the first parable. 
and the four parables that follow. And if he follows his, Jesus' explanation of the parable, and they apply that to the other parables, they can understand what it is he's saying. But if they don't care, they'll walk away and forget it in ten minutes. Then Jesus gets together and he comes into a room and his disciples come to him and they say to Jesus, explain the parable of what? Of the tares in the field. Help us understand that parable of the two sowings. Help us understand that concept of the tares. Why do they care? I don't know about you, but there are times in my life from the time I got saved through my relationship with God, that there have been times where I very clearly want to know the difference between a tear and a wheat. Because I want to know I'm wheat. I want to know I'm real. I want to know that I'm not faking myself out or that I'm not deceiving myself. Because the scripture says, do not deceive yourself. Why would it say that if it wasn't possible for you to deceive yourself? It is possible. So they said, explain to us the meaning of the tares. Help us understand what this is about. So he answered them, and he gives them the second, the only other parable he's going to explain to them. He says, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. Any question now? Who's the sower? God. Jesus Christ. He's the sower. He's the man in the story. The field is the world. Any question? Nope, we got that. Field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be when? At the end of the age. What age are we talking about? The age period of time called the kingdom of heaven, which began at the rejection of Christ in Matthew chapter 12. And we'll end in Revelation chapter 19 and his return. A lot of things happen in that period of time, right? A lot of stuff happens in that period of time. He's not defining that entire period of time for us. He's telling us this separation is going to occur. God will separate the sheep from the goats. The real from the false. The angels will be the reapers. The one who will bring that together. He says in verse 41, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. He lays out for them that concept of the tear. What is a tear? What's a tear look like? How do I know whether or not I'm true or false? And he said two things. He said all that offends. The word offend is scandalizo in the Greek. It, it carries that idea that which trips or causes to fall. That which is used to bait a trap. Anything that trips or falls or can be used to bait a trap. And then the other thing that he says, then not only that, but those who what? Practice lawlessness. That concept and throughout the scripture of practicing lawlessness simply means, what is the practice of your life? As the disciples are asking, help us understand the tares. Jesus says, the angels are going to take the tares out. And here's what marks the tares. Scandalizo, that which causes a trip or fall or bait a trap. And their life practice is lawlessness. That's the opposite of that which the Lord teaches. Their life's practice is lawlessness. When it comes down to the end. 
He says, this is how you're going to know. This is how you'll be able to tell them apart. And they will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Here's two rules that we want to understand as we look at parables or illustrations. Illustrations always are less than the real. Less terrifying, less frightening. They, they always are, are just a little bit less than what's real. So when the Lord begins to talk about hell and the realities of hell and the fact that hell exists... And he talks about it as a place where the fire always burns and there's gnashing of teeth and there's this place uh, without peace where people finally get what they've always wanted. Life without God. The downside to that is every good and perfect thing comes from our Father in heaven. So hell is the absence of every good and perfect thing. In the presence of every horrible Thing imaginable. That's hell. And Jesus speaks of the reality of hell. Not just a ceasing to exist. Not just being asleep and uh, nothing happens. He speaks of the reality of hell. And hell was created for someone specific. Right? What's the scripture teach us? Hell was created for who? The devil and his angels. So any of us who go there are trespassing. He didn't make it for us. The other thing we learn from Scripture is this. The New Jerusalem is a place that God created for the believer. It's roughly the size of the moon. Only unlike the moon where you could only live on the surface, the New Jerusalem is a cube. And you can not only live on the surface, but all through it. Like an apartment building. In fact, Jesus said it like this. Didn't he? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? Come again to bring you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The word for a place is an apartment. So some brilliant theologians got together and they took the, the size of measurements within the scripture in the book of Revelation. And they decided how many people would be able to live in the new Jerusalem. And you know what they discovered? They discovered if God gave every person ever born one square mile, there would be enough room in the new Jerusalem for them all. Hell's created for the devil and his angels. The new Jerusalem is created for the believer, and the Lord made room for everyone. However, we know not everyone's going to hear the seed. We know the good's going to grow alongside the evil. We know that the church is going to get big, but it's going to grow corrupt. We know these things are going to happen. That not everyone who hears receives. But the heart of God we see in the reality of what he did. He said, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. Did he mean it? Yeah, he did. He made enough room for us all, didn't he? Here he says at the end of this parable, as he lays out the understanding, as the Lord divides the wheat from the tares, that which is false goes into a place of punishment. We call that place hell. And then he goes on in the very next verse. What's he say in the very next verse? He says, Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You want to understand? You want to hold on to the truth? Here's the meaning. So he's given us two parables. 
The concept in theology is called expositional constancy. That means the pictures, the models don't change. So when we talk about a field, we're talking about the world. When we talk about the sower or the man, we're talking about the son of man, Jesus Christ. When we talk about the birds, we're talking about tools of the enemy that that strip away the word, the truth, the power of the word of God. All those things maintain all the way through because we want to rightly interpret the word of God. We want to rightly divide what God's word lays out for us. Well, listen, he goes on then as he finishes this story, he said, listen then again, here the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, buys the field. Well, there are those who will teach that that treasure is the gospel, the kingdom. And when we, because we're seeking God, when we find that treasure, the kingdom, we're willing to give up everything to have it. The problem is that doesn't follow proper interpretation of the scripture. The field is who? The world. Now, If the field is the world, in all the parables leading up to this point, the man was who? Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Then what is he really saying here? He's saying, when I look at the world, I saw in the world this specific treasure. This specific beauty. In fact, it's it's been described as, as, as imprisoned splendor. When he looked at all that was lost and all the sin and all the stuff and all the failure of mankind and all the things in the world, yet he could see past all that and he could see this treasure. And at the thought of that treasure, he was willing to do whatever it took that he might have that treasure. Listen, that's you. You understand? That's how God loves you. And all the stuff and all the garbage and all the craziness of the world and all the evil and the bad being together and growing up together. Now he begins to talk about from God's point of view. And God says, listen, I can look upon the world and I can see the treasure. I can see the treasure. And he said, for the joy set before him. Does that remind us of anything? It should remind us of the writer of Hebrews. For he said... For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That he, for joy of the relationship with the church, the believer, the, those who would come to faith by the work that he did, he was willing to pay it all, to give it all up. When did Jesus give it all up? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Who being in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself empty. The the word is kenosis in the Greek. Well we say it in English he made himself of no reputation. Because you know and that kind of flows nice off the tongue. But what it really means is he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Wiser men than me will spend the rest of their life arguing about what that truly means and how that really looks when Almighty God comes in the flesh and empties Himself. 
He empties himself. He also lets us know that he's still Almighty God. He's a fully God, fully man in the flesh. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, but he gave it all that he might purchase the treasure. For the joy that was before him, he sells all and buys the field. If the man is us, tell me, what do you sell to buy salvation? How do you purchase the good news of Jesus Christ? What, what works could you do? The Bible is very clear. It says the best that we produce, our righteousness is what? As filthy rags. So what is our filthy rags going to buy? Now, others, they look at this verse and they say, but don't you see you need to, you need to respond and realize that the, the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us is, needs to be the most important thing in your life, that you would readily give up everything else. That's true. That's taught a number of places in the Bible. That's just not taught here. What he's saying here is the parable from God's point of view, the kingdom of heaven, this period of time where God looks into the earth and he sees a treasure and he pays every price so that he could redeem it. So that he could have it as his very own. And we can understand that even more fully as we look at the next parable he speaks in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Well, that sounds nice to us, doesn't it? Who is he speaking to? His disciples, right? What kind of people are they? They're Jews. Do you know to the Jew the oyster is unclean? The pearl to a Jew is without value. The only value it would have to the Jew is the value that it would have to a Gentile if he gave it to him. But by the work of touching and working with the oyster, he would make himself unclean. So now Jesus says, there's a merchant, and he's, and he's looking for the pearl, and they're thinking, pearls? Who cares about pearls? What, what's this idea of pearls? Who then, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. You see, Jesus saying the same thing, but now, when he talks about the pearl, he's enlightening us. What? The pearl didn't have value to the Jew. Who did it have value to? The Gentile. So now what's he talking about? He said that here the kingdom of heaven, God sees his treasure within the, the earth and he gave all that he might purchase it. And then he gives them this light. He shines this light into the mystery that God is going to do a work among the Gentiles. Jesus is going to say in a few chapters, the kingdom of heaven has passed from you to another nation who's worthy of it. Because they rejected their Messiah. Does that mean God's done with Israel? No, no, it's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that that kingdom passed. Jesus, in the parable, he tells us, listen, here's a clue. The pearl. And this pearl is of such value to the merchant that he's willing to sell everything that he might purchase that pearl. That he might buy that possession. That he might have that which God, to God is the most important thing. That relationship with you. And how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the kind of love that looks down upon the world and in, in the midst of everything else sees you, and not just sees you, but sees you as the most important thing to possess? How do you respond to that kind of love? And therein lies 
the answer between the wheat and the tear. Oh, the wheat responds. But the tear doesn't care. Just another story. It's just another thing. And then to enlighten them a little bit further, he says again, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea. Now, there are several kind of nets that they used to fish. A dragnet simply was this humongous net that they drop out of this boat. And then they would take this net and they'd let it set down. And they'd leave it there. And then, after they figured everything that was above it is now hanging out and there's things to catch, they begin to pull it into shore. They pull up the one side and they pull that net across. And they get all kind of stuff. They get stuff they don't even want, right? They're going to bring in all kind of things, all kind of fish. That's what he's saying. They bring in this dragnet. And as they bring the dragnet, it gathers some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, and they threw the bad away. What's the point? So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. It's the same idea, the dragnet, that idea that the kingdom of heaven is like that net. The word, the seed is sown. A lot will be gathered up in that net. But the angels know how to tell the real from the false. The true from the untrue. The wheat from the tare. Good fish from bad fish. It's all the same. And they will cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. There will be judgment for it all. So we have... Three. Now there's one more parable left. We have three as they're gathered together in that room. That Jesus speaks of the Father. As the Father looks down on the kingdom of heaven, He sees it as a treasure. He sees it as this pearl of great price, something to be desired. And He sees that there's going to be a gathering of the real and the false, and the angels will separate the two. Same thing that we saw in the first four, just from the perspective of God. Rather than from the perspective of men. And then Jesus asked this question. Have you understood all these things? And the disciples lied right to his face. I don't know. Maybe the disciples understood it. I'd love to say I have a perfect understanding of all the parables Jesus taught. But that would be a lie. And anybody who tells you they do. I don't know. I don't know. The disciples, Jesus said, have you understood what I said, all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord, we get it. So at least in some level they understood it. But then the Lord tells them the next one. Then he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. That's the fourth. The fourth parable, he says, you're responsible for what you know. He says, you're a scribe. And as a scribe, what was their role? The scribe's role was to interpret what the word said. To give that right interpretation. At the time of Jesus Christ, the scribes were all wacky. Before Jesus, there was this guy named Ezra. You guys ever heard of Ezra? Ezra was a guy who led the children of Israel out of captivity. He was a scribe. In fact, that's where the word scribe begins. That movement begins there with him. And the scribe come out and he put together a pulpit. And he would read the law of the Lord and he would give the interpretation of the law. And somewhere down the line, that got corrupt. Kind of like what the parables are talking about. 
Only those are speaking of this new kingdom. The same thing happens. If history teaches us anything, what does it teach us? Man doesn't learn from history. We make the same mistakes over and over and over again. So Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to be the new scribes. And I want you to give the interpretation. I want you to to share what the word of God says and what it means. And I want you to bring things out of your treasure. The idea of that treasure is this heaping pile of treasure that they have. And the Lord is saying, "I I don't want you to hoard it. I want you to grab that treasure and throw it out to the people. Give it to them. Give out the treasure. Give out the treasure of God's word. Sow the seed. Give out the truth of what God's word teaches. Bring it out of your treasure stores. Don't keep it for yourself. Give it to the people. Give it out. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. He went to his own country. He goes to Nazareth. And he walks into Nazareth to a synagogue in Nazareth and he gives us, listen, don't miss this. He gives us the practical reality of what he just taught in the parables. He walks into the synagogue at Nazareth. You know, the one where he read Isaiah 61 and he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That was tantamount to shouting, I'm the Messiah. And they sought to throw him off a cliff. Now he comes and he's teaching and he's doing these things, these, these miracles. He brings forth this teaching to the people. And the people look at him and they say, who is this? Isn't this Mary's kid? And isn't his brothers, Jude and Joseph and, and James? And don't we know his sisters? Isn't his father that carpenter? Jesus went to his hometown and he showed them as he scattered the seed Exactly what it looks like. Exactly the way the harvest would be. But don't miss the fact that the heart of God loved those people in Nazareth so much he went back. He already left once because they tried to kill him. Now he come back and he scattered the seed again. And still their hearts would not receive it. A prophet is without honor. A prophet is not without honor except in his home country, in his hometown. Because they all knew him when he was a kid. They saw the place he lived in. How can this be God? They didn't realize. They said, how can he have this power? How can he do these works? How can he do these things that he's doing? But we know who he is. He's just a carpenter's son. And they wouldn't receive. They wouldn't hear. Hearts were hard. He gives us that fulfillment of those eight parables that he laid out. He reached into the storehouse of his treasure and he cast that gold out before them in Nazareth. And they despised him anyway. And that's the point in chapter 13. And as we come to that conclusion and we come to an opportunity for us right now, this morning to to partake of the Lord's Supper and to consider these things. You know, it's my heart that we would just take that, take that understanding, realize. What is it that you're doing with that love? What are you doing with that love that God gives? Are you dedicated to Him or are you devoted? What's the difference? Well, I don't know. Husbands, tell your wives from now on, steady you love her, you're dedicated to her. Are you dedicated to the Lord? 
Are you devoted? Are you just going through the motions for Him? Or do you love Him? Do you come to study the Word of God because you're hoping that that will some way purchase for you what God has already done? Or do you come because you love Him? And you want to show God you love Him? And as we consider the body and the blood of Jesus Christ this morning, ask yourself the question, how am I responding to the love that looks to the world and sees me and came for me and is still coming? Amen? Amen. We're going to just have the worship team come forward. And as they come forward and we prepare our hearts, the ushers can come up and gather together the implements of communion. And as communion trays are passed and as we worship, I want to invite you to consider that concept. Consider that idea. Consider the, the truth of what God's word is laying out for us here. And, and ask ourselves, ask ourselves those hard questions and answer them. And love God. Respond to that love that He has for you. And as the implements of communion are passed, I invite you just to hold on to them. And after this song, we'll partake of them together.